Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and we're going to have a very special episode as I'm here with Nathan Rostenpour. Nathan manages our center's podcast here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, but he does so much more than that. He usually works behind the scenes of our podcast production team, but he has graciously agreed to join us today for a discussion about his faith journey and his ministry within the context of the persecuted church and a closed public square. You see, Nathan is an Iranian-American who has been in the United States for the past seven years. Before coming to America, he served as a secret house church leader in Iran. He is currently working on his doctoral degree in strategic leadership at Regent University, and he's earning a second Master of Arts in Christian Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And if he didn't seem to have already enough to do, he also serves as an online pastor and leadership coach. I'm very excited to have you with us today, Nathan. Thanks so much for having me. Um, As I hinted in the introduction, you have uh, an unusual story, perhaps even an extraordinary story. Thank you. So very first off, we would love to hear about your uh, testimony and your journey both spiritual journey and physical journey, how you ended up in the United States. Sure. Thanks so much. Um, Yeah, I was born in Tehran, Iran, and I was raised in a Muslim family. My mom was a teacher, and she knew a lot about Islam, and she did her best to follow its teachings for sure. And she also would encourage us to believe in God and practice Islam. But I remember one day one of our family members came to our home and started sharing something new, sharing the gospel. Hmm. And I remember her words very powerful. And she said, Jesus is Lord, and he came to save us from our sins. And it was completely new to me. Something like God can come on earth and die for our sins. And at the first time, it was really hard for me to, as a Muslim, to accept it. But Even though uh, the Quran mentions Jesus often, this was a new way to hear about Jesus. Exactly. Completely new way about a new Jesus. Completely new Jesus. and uh, But completely new sweet Jesus and really lovely Jesus. Because it was my first time to hear words such as, love your enemies. Hmm. It is something completely new for a Muslim to hear something like that. So at that moment, when I heard those powerful words, Lord touched my heart and something changed in my heart. Mm. And it was not a complicated conversation. It was just a friendly conversation, but she used the Bible to talk with us about Jesus. So that's why we encourage people, when they share, they use verses of the Bible because this is the Word of God that wants to touch the heart and do the work. It's not us. So at that moment when I heard that powerful words, Holy Spirit touched me. And I I remember I went to my room and opened the door and I found myself on my knees. Mm. And I looked up and said, Jesus, I know that you are Lord, 
save me. And it was my simple salvation prayer. Even I didn't know that I should repent or I should go to church or I had no idea about these things. Just very simply, I accepted Jesus in my heart and suddenly everything changed in our family. My mom gave her heart to Jesus and also me and my younger brother. And um, did, they, did they trust Christ at the very same time or within a reason, a close time you did? Close or? time, I can say, yeah. And then after maybe two or three days, the whole family became Christian. And then we went to a building church in Tehran and mm-hmm. pastors came, prayed for us and shared the gospel in details. And it was really a good experience for us to see the Christians Uh, singing songs in our own language, not in Arabic. They were singing and praising God in Persian. It was my first time hearing a praise or a worship in Farsi. In the Farsi native tongue of an Iranian. Exactly. So it was powerful. And then right after that, we started to study Bible. You're you're in your mid-30s now. How, mm-hmm. how old were you at the time of your conversion? I was 17 years 17. old. 17. So we're talking almost 20 years ago. Yes. You and your family mm-hmm. uh, have a profound encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he becomes your Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. You visit a a brick-and-mortar church, Mm -hmm. a standing building of which there are believers, and they minister to you. Yes. And you get to hear praises and prayers in your native tongue. What what happens next? And then we started to attend house churches because one of our friends and also family members told us that it was safer to be in a house church and for sure a secret house church, not in a building because... Shortly after that, the government shot down all the buildings that all the Muslim background believers used to go. So we have Armenians and Assyrians in Iran that they are allowed to have buildings mm-hmm. as their churches, but no MBBs or Muslim background believers. Mm. So all the Muslim background believers like me have to go to a secret house church. And we always encourage them to keep the number under 10 or sometimes under 5 to be safe. So we started our own house church and I was really hungry for the Word of God. So I immediately started to participate in discipleship and leadership trainings with uh, ministries such as Open Doors International. And then I would go outside the country and study intensively and then would take the courses back inside of the country and teach it to my cell group. So after one or two years, I started to Uh, teach basic theological or discipleship or leadership trainings. And after four or five years, I started to have my own cell groups and my own house churches. And I served the Lord almost 10 years in those secret churches. So your cell groups, you purposely kept them small. And by small, we mean between five and 10. And you kept them always under 10. Yes. So this means that once it grew larger than that, or as it began to grow, you divided it and started to another. So what was the effect of this? Did this hinder the spread of the gospel, or would you say this actually, to your surprise, maybe acted as an accelerant? It helped a lot, and it helps right now. Let me give you a statistic from OperationWorld.org. Okay. According to Operation World, with a 19.6% annual growth rate, Iran has the fastest-growing evangelical population in the world. So right now at this time, 
the Iranian church is the fastest growing church in the world. Yes, sir. That is exciting news. That really is wonderful to hear that uh, it's difficult for us to hear news Mm -hmm. from other parts of the world just in general, but especially in parts of the world that basically closed off to Western uh, American reporters. And even if it was open, if it were open, I'm not at, at all sure that our mm-hmm. reporters would be reporting. They would be considering this the kind of news <laughs> they'd want to report. So it's really good to hear that. And I think I think our listeners need to know uh, just the amazing thing that God is doing in Iran. Exactly. And guess what? what what's the second country? Afghanistan. Afghanistan. And despite of severe persecution, secret houses are growing. And this is the key. So that's why we're encouraging people in Iran and Afghanistan to have their own cell groups and keep it small. And they don't need to go to huge assemblies and then, uh, because that's, that's the key that they can grow fast. I, I am encouraged by what you, you're saying. And in, in a way, I'm not surprised, uh, as I mentioned to you before we were recording, mm-hmm. about 10 years ago, I was in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is a, a country that's the church has suffered a great deal of difficulty at the hands of the communists, particularly under the yeah. Fidel Castro's regime. Back in the 1990s, uh, when some of the churches were wanting to build uh, additional buildings, and of mm. course, all the land is owned by the government, you know, so they put in a request uh, to to build buildings, and they were turned down by the communist government. However, the government did agree that mm. they could meet for prayer meetings in homes. And what seemed to be a defeat for the church in uh, Cuba turned out to be a wonderful uh, victory because the home church movement exploded in Cuba. And I had the privilege of preaching a graduation ceremony uh, for uh, preachers and pastors studying for the ministry. And it was just one of the most exciting, transformative wow. experiences I ever had because it was very clear to me that God was doing an amazing thing in Cuba. Wow. And so it's exciting to me to hear that similar things are happening in Iran uh, and in, in Afghanistan. So you serve for 10 years in the house church movement where you become a leader uh, developing cells Tell us then about your journey. What happened? What happens next in your your life journey? Sure. And in 2010, uh, the intelligence police uh, in Iran they arrested one of my friends, and we were close in the same network. So I remember one of our pastors came to me and he was like, "Nathan, you are the next." So uh, it was a huge decision for me because I knew that if I go out. That's it. That's finished. I, I just I can never go back to my country. I can never visit my family again. But my mom encouraged me to go because she just wanted to keep me safe. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard, very emotional, hard decision. But my brother and I, my younger brother and I, we decided to go to Turkey and became a Christian refugee. And through United Nations in uh, 2013, we came here into the United States. So we stayed there for two years in Turkey as Christian refugees, and I continued my ministry helping Persian churches in Turkey. I used to lead the worship, I I used to preach, teach, and then in 2013, I came here in the United States, and I started working in supermarkets, did all I could, 
And then by the grace of God, I could um, go to school again. So I uh, pursued a master's in organizational leadership at Regent University, which is a Christian school. And then after I graduated from Regent and got my master's, I came here in this wonderful school, Southeastern. And then I started another master's in Christian studies. And then now I'm pursuing a doctorate in uh, the same school in Regent University. So my, my vision is to equip the persecuted church, not only Iran, but also the Arabic countries, the church in Arabic countries or in China or in anywhere that I can help and share my experiences to, to train healthy, secret house church leaders for these movements. Because I believe, brother, someday, even in the United States, we will face the persecutions. And it has already somehow started. So we need to be ready. We need to know how to have our own safe cell groups to, to have a strong church, not only in a building so that governments can shut that building and we're done. But if our churches can be in our homes and on a Sunday in a building, no government can stop that. You've moved ahead to, uh, this is a great segue to the next two questions I want to Mm -hmm. talk to you about before we finish the podcast. The first one I want to ask you about, I mean, what you're talking about in many ways is a return to the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. You know, it is is very much a model that one can see in the New Testament in which um, there is a singular church in a city, the the church in Corinth, the church in Jerusalem, the church in Rome, and yet there are a Plurality, a multiplicity of elders uh, serving, and what this seems to be is that there were uh, they were meeting all over the city. So something that looks like what you're talking about is really a step towards the New Testament model, with a very interesting 21st century twist, mm-hmm. and that is we have uh, worldwide communications via the internet and other social media. I mean, that has really been a game changer, and you've already uh, alluded to it uh, in a number of ways in that you are ministering presently here in North Carolina to uh, believers in Iran. As much as you can tell us, Mm -hmm. tell us about your present ministry, uh, about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Sure. My wife and I have an online church on Instagram for the persecuted church of Iran. And also we have members from Afghanistan and Tajikistan. So what we do, we have Christian teaching materials online and we have our YouTube channel, our Facebook page and Telegram channel, uh, which is really popular in Iran and they can use it. And so we post all these materials as a resource for them so that they can have access even offline later and then study materials, study Bible, and watch the sermons, the worship services. And during a week, we also have live sessions with them that's so that they can ask questions and grow and have fellowship. So on Sundays, we have our online church, so we tune in and we worship together. Most of the time, I preach or teach or have sometimes guests and other pastors can help me. When I was in Iran, I used to have a couple of cell groups with 50 to 60 university students. Mm -hmm. Now, through the internet, on Facebook and Instagram, I can reach 
more than 40,000 people through my pages. That's a huge opportunity. And people in Iran, especially the young generation, they are tired of Islam. They're asking questions. On our online church on Sundays, we don't have only the Christians. Muslims can come and they do come and ask us for prayers. Mm. So this is a great opportunity for my uh, wife and I to share the gospel with them. I believe these days, especially for the persecuted church, e-learning platforms are the key because we can have fellowship, we can have worship, we can have teaching, we can have even service. I encourage them to go to their societies and have the service. And we can have even communion with each other. I know it's a it's a topic that we yeah, can yeah, talk about it for I'm hours. I'm sure Dr. Hammett would have a conversation <laughs> with you. Exactly. But this is the only way for Persian people nowadays to have communion. Mm-hmm. Because we have believers that they are just by themselves, one person in a very strict Muslim family. And sometimes they message me and, and say, Brother Nathan... I have not had communion for months, mm-hmm. so what should I do? And I'm like, next week we have it on our online church. You can have a bread and the uh, grape juice and just come and join us, and we're going to worship. So I believe these social media platforms, these e-learning platforms are a blessing to us uh, so that we can use it and equip the church. The uh, early church made took advantage of the social, cultural, and technological advantages of its day. Mm -hmm. I mean, in many ways, God and his providence set up the Roman Empire with the building of roads, the uh, spreading of Hellenistic culture, the advent of relatively cheap writing materials, Mm -hmm. paper, all of these things, the church made, uh, it was was quite entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. in its its approach. And so uh, I, I see that uh, happening today. Uh, these are very exciting things. So you are used to dealing with uh, a situation in which Christians, uh, it's not just that they're a minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they are in many ways in a, in a remarkably hostile environment. I'm an older, I'm old enough, Nathan, to remember when Christians used to belong to organizations called the Moral Majority, mm. in which um, the, the United States has a profound Christian heritage. In many sections of our country, Christians have had a, a significant voice, and I, would think, I think most people would agree that there are parts of our country that it, it, was, it was the predominant voice, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking particularly of what's been known as the Bible Belt. But that was even true of, of colonial Northeast, the, the Puritan heritage. So there are parts of our nation, all of our nation, but, but has had some Christian influence, but parts, it's, it's played a, a dominating role. We are today experiencing a seismic cultural shift. Hmm. And some of our dear saints are struggling with that, as very understandable. How do we, how are we faithful in our witness when we're no longer mm-hmm. the predominant voice? We're not going to win the city council vote. We're going to lose it. And now during the experiences of the pandemic mm-hmm. in which governors of states have required churches to either not meet or curtailed it to where only like 50 or no indoor meetings and things yeah. of that nature. This has been this has been hard, yeah, and and it's understandable why it's hard for. The, f- what would you have to say to 
to the American church in this context? How would you how would you try to speak a word of wisdom to us, having been already in your context? What what how could you help us? I think still we can be the church if they shut down our buildings because I used to have the same experience in Iran. I remember when the Iranian government shut down our buildings, we decided to focus on the Great Commission Mm -hmm. and we invested everything in house churches. Maybe it's not the same now in the United States, but I pray that my brothers and sisters in our beautiful country, we can focus on Great Commission, we can invest in our house churches, because the first thing that I noticed in a mega church in the United States as a person who just came to this country, I was like, wow, man, it's huge mm-hmm. how these people know each other. So in the Bible, especially in Acts, when we read, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved in Acts chapter 2. We do need to do this first and then gather in a huge building because when we lose the building, we lose our church. Mm-hmm. So we need to work on our relationships. So I pray that our church leaders invest in relationships first rather than investing in equipments and huge buildings and fancy buildings. So this is my prayer for our church in the United States. So if someday we face the same persecutions so that we can rest assured that we have mature believers, that they know each other personally, they can pray with each other, they can get together in small house churches, in small cell groups, and nothing, absolutely nothing can stop this movement if we think about it and work on it properly. So if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is is that regardless of what kind of of mandate we receive from state and local governments or maybe someday federal governments that the church still can be the church exactly and that we can function uh, as a local new testament church Mm -hmm. uh, because as and and you're talking to someone who does enjoy a great preaching service with with a large crowd of believers i mean who who doesn't i do too yeah yeah yeah. i mean who doesn't i mean i've i've gone to uh conferences you know i'm thinking of uh, being at, at a men's meeting uh, in which there were 70,000 men and hearing them all sing praises to God made made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It was just a, an amazing experience. Yeah. So we all enjoy uh, the corporate worship. We do. Uh, I mean, one of these days, according to Revelation 5, we're going to be in a very big church service. Yes, amen. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. In the meantime, if I hear you correctly, we should not be distracted Exactly. By by the questions about that type of, you know, how big our, our church service should be, mm-hmm. but focusing on what a New Testament Great Commission church actually does. Exactly. So uh, as we close, uh, my dear brother, mm-hmm. uh, how can we and how should we pray for our persecuted brethren? The first thing is just to pray for them that God give them more strength to stand in those hard situations, especially in the close countries like Iran, Afghanistan. And the second way that we can really help is to to bring awareness about these persecuted churches. Because every time that we have 
a Christian in prison in Iran because of their faith, when the media talks about them, they have less pressure mm-hmm. because they know that we know, we are aware of it. Yeah. And also encouragement. We have social media. We can post about these churches, encourage them, pray for them publicly. And then by doing this, uh, tell them that we are here for them. So we've been listening to Nathan Rostenpour. Nathan, if one of our listeners wanted to have to get in contact with you, what would be uh, maybe a Facebook page or YouTube channel? What, w- what, what would be the best way for them to communicate with you? Sure. They can search either Nathan Rostampur or NR Leadership, Nathan Rostampur Leadership, and you can find my YouTube channel or Facebook or Instagram. We have been talking with Nathan Rostampur about what God is doing in Iran and other closed countries. This is the Christ and Culture Podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and I'm wishing you a good day.